Hi, you're listening to a sermon from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. We're so glad you're listening. If you'd like more information, you can visit us online at oakhills.org or phone us at 916-983-0181. Matthew 16, I'm going to read verses 21 through 28. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in His Father's glory with His angels, and then He will reward each person according to what they have done. Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Baseball spring training has begun, and for the next six weeks, major league teams will shake the rust off of winter and daily prepare themselves for the long 162-game season that begins in early April and ends, hopefully, sometime in October. And a million years ago, I played baseball. I was a catcher, and I loved the position because there's action on every play. There's no sitting and watching and waiting for the ball to come to you. But it's also uh, the, the one position on the field that can see the whole context of the game unfolding before their eyes. But here's reality. I've never been much of a follower of baseball, never watched it very much because it's a long season. The game is slow. Sometimes I find it rather boring. But I do love the annual rhythm of spring training. Six weeks of daily preparation for the long season. Peter Gammons is a baseball writer who said, Baseball needs spring training for one reason. It's all about hope. Well, Manuel mentioned this, Lent began last Wednesday, and last Wednesday night we gathered and we reflected on the, this important season we are now in. We received the imposition of the ashes, and now we are in the early days of a six-week-long spring training in preparation for Resurrection Sunday and for another year of resurrection living. I'm reading from Matthew 4, verses 1 through 3. It is on the screens. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry, and the tempter came to him and said... So this wilderness experience happens just before Jesus' public ministry, and this 40-day excursion in the wilderness is the biblical reference point for the season of Lent that began a few days ago on Ash Wednesday. And we all know this, but the wilderness is not a safe place. It is unknown. It is unpredictable. It is uncomfortable. The wilderness is a dangerous place. Jesus encountered the tempter out in the wilderness. He was amongst 
the wild animals. He fasted from food, he survived on water, and he survived on the real presence of his father with him through it all. So how does this verse sit with you? Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Unnerves me a little bit. The Spirit of God led the Son of God into the darkness of the wilderness. It's good to camp on this for just a second. This was a Spirit-led excursion into difficulty, deprivation, trouble, and temptation. And just prior to this, the, the passage actually just before this, at his baptism, we're told the Holy, Holy Spirit descended like a dove and affirmed Jesus, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. I love that scene and I love the words. They certainly work well on a refrigerator magnet or on a bumper sticker, but not so much the idea of the Holy Spirit leading Jesus and us out into the wild to face the elements and go without food and deal with the snakes and with the wolves, the drastic temperature changes, the onset of fear as day becomes night, the mind games and the ongoing wrestling match with temptation. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. May not be our favorite verse in the Bible, but I believe we desperately need the spring training of Lent. And our Lenten series is called Less is More. And over the next six weeks of this spring training, we are going to consider the abundance of less, the freedom of less, and the joy of less. And we're beginning today by thinking about less self and more God. Now, speaking candidly, that actually sounds a bit overdone to me, a bit canned, a bit too religious for my normal taste buds. Like exactly what one would expect to hear inside of a church. Boringly predictable. Less self, more God. But I want to press into this. And I'd, I'd actually like your permission to push a little bit harder today. I hope you know culture is crucially important at Oak Hills. Who we are as a congregation. Process is crucially important. Journey is important. Grace is crucial. Growth by inches is crucial, with falling backwards being a given. And the notion of moving toward God together as a community is crucial. But I want to press today and push a bit today without spending a bunch of energy to qualify the pressing or the pushing. I think most of us live at a fast pace, and it is really easy for the things of God's kingdom to get crowded out by the things of our kingdom. And I think we need the spring training of Lent to bring us back, to draw us in. So I want us to seize the next 40 days and willfully and intentionally individually and communally enter into these 40 days with less concern and devotion to self and more concern for and devotion to God. So let's begin by talking about accepting God on his terms. The self is a powerful force to reckon with in life and in relationships. It is always present. It constantly demands its rights and privileges and preferences. It rears its head at unexpected times and in unexpected ways. The self wants control. The self wants to call the shots. The self wants to be in charge. The self wants what it wants when it wants it. And none of us are immune. 
The Bible calls it the flesh, or sometimes the old self. But it is old only because it is no longer inevitable because of what Jesus has done. But it still makes demands. It fights for control every single day. And most of us can attest, it often wins. And so for all of us, our wills, our thoughts, our feelings, our bodies, our relationships, our souls are highly trained in the art of us. I possess Olympic skill at being about me. I'm really, really good at it. This is no joke. Self-protection, self-preservation, self-promotion. On we can go. This fixation on self is a direct consequence of human sin, and everything is phased by it. Everything is marred by it, including our perception of God, how we see him. See, we end up making God in our image. We make him to be a particular way, namely the way we want him to be. We make him do particular things, namely the things we want him to do. We make him care about this, but not about that. So God is often a means to our ends. A projection of what we are minus the limitation. I am about me, and in turn, I make God about me. And so I pray, my servant who is in heaven, entitled is my name. My kingdom come, my will be done at home, at work, at school, on earth, on the moon, on Mars, in heaven, everywhere, and all the time. Give me the things I want. Oh, and sorry about the occasional mistake I make. Even though most of them are really someone else's fault, and further proof the universe is conspiring against me. Forgive me way more than I have forgiven those who so willfully and shamelessly and heartlessly have sinned against me. I mean, if they had done what to you what they did to me, you wouldn't forgive them either. And lead me not into deprivation, but deliver me from anything and everything that disrupts or discomforts my agenda, my will, or my life. For mine is the kingdom, and mine is the power, and mine is the glory, this moment, and the next, and the rest of today, and all of tomorrow, and this coming week, and every day of this month, and all 365 this year, and every year of this decade, and every decade of this century, forever and ever and ever. Thanks, bro. So in Matthew chapter 16, the chapter of our scripture reading, Jesus asks his disciples, who do people say the son of man is? What's the noise out there about me? And they proceed to share the various opinions people have. And then Jesus does what Jesus always does. He leaves the realm of the theoretical. He gets out of the realm of the general. And he presses into the deeply personal. And he asks his disciples, who do you say the son of man is? And Peter speaks up and he nails the answer. You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus gives him the affirmation of a lifetime. But then we come to our scripture reading and it says, From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the teachers of the law and that he must be killed and on the third day raised to life. Now, what is he doing here? He's helping his disciples understand what Messiah and Son of the living God actually 
mean? And make no mistake, these disciples thought they had a clear idea of what Messiah meant. And not so surprisingly, Messiah meant freedom from Rome. It meant restoration of land for Israel. It meant all of Israel's enemies would be conquered and destroyed. It meant Israel would be the ruling nation of the world. It meant the darkness was over and the light had finally come. It meant their best life now. But Jesus is talking about the Messiah suffering and dying. You see what is happening here. Their whole paradigm of God and who he was and what he was about was punctured right in front of their eyes and ears. An A-plus student, Peter, puts his arm around Jesus and rebukes him. Uh, Never, Jesus. This is never going to happen to you. And Jesus ever so kindly says, oh yeah, get behind me, you devil, because you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. We're starting to get down into accepting God on his terms. A different version says it this way, you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but on man's. The self. Distorting even one's perception of God. See, this is the intricacy of God's work within us. He gets down to the bottom of the bucket. And he deals with the source of things. See, Jesus has been with these disciples for a couple of years now, and they don't get who he is or what he's about. And this is important. That's okay. It's a process. It's a journey. Jesus isn't swinging the hammer of condemnation here. But they have way too much of themselves projected into their understanding of Messiah. Put it this way, God was just like them, with more power to make happen what they wanted to have happen. So God was ticked off like they were. He was revengeful, and he was just waiting for the right opportunity to overthrow the despicable Romans so finally Israel would be in control. So God was them on steroids. And Peter simply could not conceive of a suffering Messiah, so he didn't. And Jesus had to rattle his cage. Now remember, Peter was pretty much close to the best of the lot, ranked number one or number two out of 12. And Jesus had to rattle his cage because he was thinking of Jesus incorrectly, selfishly. And this kind of self-projection onto God is happening all the time in these interesting days in which we live. So Jesus looks exactly like the people who are passionately promoting their particular agenda item. So for these over here, Jesus relishes sending people to hell. He can't wait to sentence them to a lifetime, an eternity of suffering. For those groups over there, Jesus hates Muslims and he hates gays. For this group over here, Jesus only really cares for the poor and the rich. Too bad. You're doomed and hopeless. For this bunch over there, money is the chief sign of God's blessing. For that group over there, Jesus is a macho man who doesn't take anything from anyone because who wants a God they can beat up anyway? For others over here, Jesus is meek and mild and rather unsure of his views. And he seems kind of insecure and he just might need some therapy. (laughs) For this tribe over here, Jesus is a self-help guru. He exists to make 
you have your best life now. For others, Jesus is a rule maker. And don't you dare break one of his rules or you will pay. For this group over here, God is a Republican. For that group over there, only until he was converted and now he's a Democrat. Anne Lamott wrote these words. You can safely assume that you've created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people you do. So there is this meaningful showdown in our scripture reading between the Jesus Peter wanted and the Jesus who actually was. And this was only the beginning for Peter. He was going to have many more of these showdowns between the Jesus he wanted and the Jesus who actually was. And ever so gradually, Peter learned to surrender and let God be who God was, especially when who God was did not make sense and couldn't be explained. We live in a time when it is very easy to think God is what those who are screaming the loudest claim he is. So I just want to stick our nose right in this passage. This is just one little hunk of scripture, but I want to stick our nose in this and try to say what seems to be fairly obvious from this passage about Jesus, about God. His love is so extreme, it seems crystal clear. He suffers at the hands of those he could easily conquer in the hopes of persuading them by his sacrificial love. That seems pretty clear. That's what he is like. He suffers at the hands of those he could easily conquer. And in his words, whoever wants to be his disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow him. The Jesus way is the way of the cross. And if we're serious about following him, we're headed to the cross, not once, many times in the course of a life. Here's another thing I think we can say with our nose in this passage. His way of power and conquering is not like our way of power and conquering. He said to Pilate near the end of his life, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest. If I did it the way you do it, Pilate, you wouldn't stand a chance. But I don't use the means you employ because my kingdom is from another place. It's a different reality and it is ultimate reality. Jesus' way of power and conquering happens through his death and resurrection where he deals with the root brokenness of the human soul and with this cursed world. One other thing that seems rather obvious, Peter had been with Jesus for a while. Peter was in many ways the leader of these disciples, ranked number one or two out of the twelve. He seemed to get it more than most, and yet here and elsewhere throughout his life, Peter's certainty is confronted by the truth of Jesus, and you can guess what wins. Peter is unraveled by the truth Jesus gives him that undoes his certainty. And turns his paradigm inside out. Or think of it this way. God is so big, so vast, so mysterious, so incomprehensible. It is supreme arrogance to think any one of us is playing catcher. And we've got the whole picture stretched out in front of us. We've got the whole context 
dialed in, as if somehow we have arrived and we have God figured out and dialed in, oh, that we might be stripped of such arrogance and never think we have arrived or dialed God in or figured him out. In fact, the place where we are the most certain might just be the spot Jesus wants to confront and transform. So be very, very sparse with the phrase, never, Lord, this isn't going to happen. Secondly, as we think about less self, more God, let's talk about rigorous self-examination. I recently got this email from Marriott Rewards, you know, the whole hotel accumulate points, stay for free kind of a thing. Here's what the email said. It's all because of you, Mike. You're the reason Marriott Rewards is up for six Freddy Awards, including Program of the Year. I'm sure I'm the reason. I mean, what other explanation could there be? Talk about feeding the myth of the supremacy of self. But this is the world we live in. And if we're waiting for the world to turn away from self and turn toward God, plan on a long wait. Lent is a time to invite the Spirit into the many rooms and closets and crawl spaces of the self. We let the Spirit search us and inspect our hearts and inspect our anxious thoughts, as the psalmist says, and see if there is any offensive way in us. And this is a gracious inspection extending far deeper than the surface of our fickle behaviors now and then. This is not a stop this and start that kind of a thing, or a do this and don't do that kind of a thing. This is the spirit roaming in the nooks and crannies and corners of our interior world and revealing to us where and what he wants to transform. And his ideas rarely comply with our complacency or fit in our agenda or align with our plan. Less self means we reset to his kingdom and to his will and to his plan. And it often hurts to do this. Socrates said, the unexamined life is not worth living. Our own Travis Carr said this past Wednesday night, there is a great big difference between self-knowledge, knowing ourselves, and self-preoccupation, the self we are saying to have less of in this series. The first, self-knowledge, can certainly lead to the second, self-preoccupation, but they're not the same. In fact, less self is only possible with more self-awareness. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 24, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. You don't need me to explain this. What would deny yourself look like tomorrow? It's a rather robust teaching, isn't it? It just kind of flows off the tongue. Deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. I would contend deny yourself will remain little more than a muscular verse reverberating, reverberating, reverberating in our head unless we know ourselves really well. We know our junk. We know the particulars of what self-denial would mean for us. We know where our self hides. What disguises it wears. What masks it puts on so we can't see it 
at first blush. John the Baptist's beautiful and well-known words about Jesus in John chapter 27 and verse 30. He said this about Jesus, He must become greater, I must become less. Another one of those great verses flows off the tongue, has a nice cadence to it, works well on a magnet. And for John, this meant my time as a public figure who is drawing crowds and getting attention and having people come to me, my moment in the spotlight is done. The focus is now on him, and my joy is in his exaltation. Now, maybe I'm alone on this, but verses about the supremacy of God and the importance of self-denial have a magnetic kick to them. They're fun to hear. They're fun to read. They're fun to memorize. They're fun to put on magnets. They're fun to recite in sermons. But one of the Spirit's purposes for these verses, I believe, is to catalyze a rigorous self-awareness so we can journey towards surrendering the specifics to the kingship of Jesus. The most dangerous people on the planet are Christians who don't know themselves. Great saints throughout history have emphasized the crucial importance of knowing God and knowing self. And yet we work so hard to avoid owning and naming things like our pride, our lust, our anger, control, addiction, fear. Being busy is our salvation, right? allows us to avoid the unformed details of ourself. But the wilderness of Lent is a time to remember we are sinners in need of ongoing conversion. And in the wilderness, we're stripped of all the defenses, just us and God. And I know this is kind of heavy today. I, I, I realize it. It's heavy because it's heavy. It is. And this is wondrously good news, actually, that we get stripped, that there's nothing between us but us and God, because our parole from the prison of self is to face the truth of who we are and be honest with God, and facing the truth and being honest sets us free. So here's me. You know where the self has hidden in me for many, many years? It hides in my insecurities. It's actually hidden in my shame. The self, the insidious self, clamoring for attention, clamoring for airtime, hides in my shame and in my insecurity. Because I can throw down an insecurity and then again, if people come, oh, we'll take care of you. You can talk about shame and it sounds so good and it draws attention, but myself has hidden in these Trojan horses that don't appear to be containers of the self, but in fact they are, because at the end of the day, what these insecurities and what this shame has done, it is as preoccupied me with me. Edna Hong wrote, The reason Lent is so long is that this path to the truth of oneself is long and snagged with thorns, and at the very end one stands alone before the broken body, crowned with thorns upon the cross, all alone, with not one illusion or self-delusion to prop one up. There's a light one for you. So I want to urge us over the next six weeks of spring training to face ourselves. We talk about this all the time, but I want us to face ourselves. I don't know what it will mean for you, but it's probably going to mean taking some time to be alone with God in some kind of desert, just you and him. Quit the game. Stop the pretending. Stop trying to make it sound good. The invitation is full of grace. Search me. Go into the nooks, the crannies, the corners, the cupboards, the closets, the crawl spaces. Search me, know me, see what's in me that's not aligned with you. Third and last, 
Let's talk about choosing deprivation. Several years ago, I read a book called Leaving Church by a pastor and a Christian leader, and the author describes a time when her husband, Ed, visited an Indian reservation in South Dakota for a personal spiritual retreat. A chief took everything away from Ed right when he arrived, except for a wool blanket. He took him out to a hill, and he left him there to pray for two days. And then the author writes these words. When I met Ed at the Atlanta airport, I had a hard time recognizing him. He had shaved his beard. He had spent two days naked before God. His eyes were like small suns in the middle of his sunburned face. He had lost weight. On the way home, he said many things. But the one that struck with me was, you make church too easy. Well, Ed's words have stuck with me as well. He's restating the words Jesus spoke to his disciples we read earlier in Matthew 16. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. I find this interesting. Jesus speaks to his disciples about the terms of discipleship. Three words, deny, die, follow. Not exactly glossy brochure worthy. Come join us and learn how to deny self and die to self. Probably not going to work. Deny, die, follow. Say no. Open your hands and follow the king. Deny, die, follow. Pretty good spring training practice. We choose to deny. Self, we choose to die to self and we choose to follow because deprivation forms the character of Jesus in us. See, deprivation, the way we're talking about it, really has to do with these bodies we have. We sometimes think of our spiritual life as this realm of all this invisible stuff, thoughts, feelings, heart, will, mind, Soul, all of it is right there. But this interior world is expressed and lived out in our physical bodies. And our bodies become trained to go this or that way. Habits get formed into our bodies. So our spiritual lives are intimately integrated in and with our physical bodies. I'll give you an example. I love cookies. I mean, I really love cookies. I've always loved cookies. And so I'm going to have willpower, think about it, over cookies. Well, this interior thing called willpower is going to either find expression in my body through my resistance to the cookies, or I'm going to pour a tall glass of cold milk, and my lack of willpower will be expressed through my indulgence of the cookies. So the forming of my will is observable through the actions of my body. Who we are and who we are becoming is embodied in our words, in our actions, in our responses. Last Wednesday night, Ash Wednesday, traced our hand on a piece of paper. They're in the back. If you want to do this, I would suggest it. People filed forward these big spikes on the communion table. They wrote on the hand the things they wanted to die to and jammed them on top of these spikes. And you're watching people do this, and there's this sound of paper over spike. We're hearing it. We're seeing it. We're doing it. 
Our bodies are engaged in it. Our bodies are responding. Our bodies are being formed. We're being spiritually formed. Now, we don't talk too much about the spiritual formation of our bodies because talking about our bodies makes us uncomfortable for a million reasons. So we put our bodies over here, shut the door, and separate them from our spiritual lives. But our spiritual lives are primarily made manifest in and through our physical bodies. Dying to self, think about it, it hardly means anything if it doesn't mean depriving the cravings and the urgings of our bodies and turning these aches and pains and longings into occasions for prayer and communion with God. Oh, if I could only have a cookie. Looks so good, I want the cookie. Sound like a Sesame Street character. But But the Bible says man does not live on cookies alone. Something like that. But on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. You catch that? Man does not live on food alone, in their bodies, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So somehow, in the deprivation, Jesus meets me. Not in some mystical storybook way, but he actually meets me. And his presence is enough to sustain me through the cookie craving and way beyond that. And in this spring training drill, I learn the way the kingdom of God actually works. I learn the power of the kingdom in the real stuff of life. I learn the nearness of the kingdom. I'm not talking about some wispy thing far away. I'm talking about God's power at work in us. And we experience this when we choose deprivation. Deny, die, follow. This makes church not so easy. And that's good. So how might you deny your body's cravings this spring training of Lent? And when the crave happens in whatever way, simple, You turn and you simply are present to God when it craves. How might you die to your body's cravings? Open your hands and let whatever go. Some of you know I've been dealing with nagging back pain for, seems like forever. And one of the things I'm attempting this Lenten season, this is not some heroic thing. I've done it like twice since Ash Wednesday, so it's not a big deal. But when my back hurts, can I turn that physical sign of mortality into an occasion to drive me toward God? Deprivation. The reality is most of the stuff we don't need and we really don't want. So following our king into the desert and ultimately to the cross doesn't sound easy, which means it just might be true. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful to you for the piercing, searching depth of your word and the gracious invitation to come to you And particularly to come to you with the things that seem way beyond us. We're clutching tightly. We don't want to lose. 
We don't think letting go will result in something better coming in. And so give us faith to trust you, to hang on to you, to follow you into the desert, and to trust your spirit will do a good work. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.